Thomas Walker almost owned paradise. Governor of his own little slice of heaven, a cozy fishing village on a sandy Bahaman island named Nassau. And in a fair world, it might have been Thomas's too. Another British governor founded Nassau 50 years earlier in 1666, then left for America without appointing anyone to take over. The Spanish also occupied it briefly in 1703 before leaving it, then the French, and once in 1684, the Spanish burned it to the ground to keep it from being used by British privateers. That was a trend for Nassau, to be occupied, used, and abandoned. But Nassau recovered, it always recovered. The Spanish fleet was finally gone after the War of Secession bankrupted them. And with nobody appointed governor of the new Nassau, that left Thomas Walker, the last loyal British officer in paradise and the de facto governor of Nassau. Thomas Walker almost had it all until the pirates showed up. History generally agrees that Thomas Walker saw the writing on the wall. He knew he was about to lose his paradise to the thousands of out-of-work privateers arriving from England. An invasion force of jobless sailors who had been released from the King's service without pension or compensation. An army sailing to Nassau looking for easy work or for plunder. Thomas Walker warned them all, the Americans and the British, a private army was forming right here in paradise. Walker even published articles in the early American newspapers about out-of-work privateers starting troubles in the Bahamas. But he made one massive blunder. When Walker wrote about the plunderers and scavengers stealing from the wrecks, he accidentally included how much silver they were bringing in. Thomas Walker, the last man standing in Nassau, accidentally put out an advertisement for unemployed sailors. Come to the Bahamas, where pirate enterprises paid fairer wages than the British crown. When Thomas Walker lost his paradise, he had no one to blame but himself, him and his beloved king for refusing to pay privateer pensions. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-duh on the internet. Stories about pirates like Blackbeard and Bonnie Charles Vane and Benjamin Hornigold tend to overhype three big parts of piracy. Rivers of plunder, tons of fighting, and loads of sex. We don't want to splash too much cold water on these fables, but we're going to review a few practical aspects of why the golden age of piracy began. First of all, how short it lasted, which is less than 40 years, and why the pirate era began in the first place, which really comes down to unfair labor. To help us navigate this history of privacy in the Bahamas and the injustice that spawned it, we have three myths about fairness. Myth one, standards of fairness is a modern concept, like beauty standards or standards for fine dining, 
It's not like human beings are hardwired for fairness, right? Myth two, which emotion causes us to act more fair? Are we bigger tippers when we're happy? Or do we give out bigger holiday bonuses when we're flush? Myth three, what's so great about fairness anyway? Lots of millionaire CEOs don't seem to give a damn about fairness and they're doing fantastic. We're gonna get to our myths, but first, I want to explain to Joe the difference between a pirate and an out-of-work privateer. So, before we really dive into this, uh, do you want to tell everybody about the documentary? It's it's yeah, it's a documentary. It's not dramatization. It, it's it's a full-on documentary. What what did you send me? And <laughs> I'll talk about what I glommed onto. Well, this the Netflix special. We put it in. Um, we'll put it in the show notes is what got this going. And I thought I knew something about pirates just being a American history nerd. But I couldn't stop watching this. Uh, it is a drama documentary, but I think it's heavy on the documentary part. Yeah. And it's pretty factual. It's just fascinating, isn't it, Joe? What did you think of it? It it blew my mind. Uh, I'm I'm with you on I thought I knew piracy like like the history of it how it worked generally what it was about um but there are so many major misconceptions i had about piracy i didn't know that so many pirates were dealing with um the carolinas like like that they it wasn't just like the british and pirates and the bahamas they were coming to america non-stop and messing with our money like like we're gonna get into the economy of it um, but yeah, there's, there's just a ton of misconceptions I had the, okay. So here's a question I had for you. Did you realize that that golden age of piracy where there were all of those legends and myths and stuff, did you realize how short a, a period of time that was? <laughs> we did a show about that, didn't we? Uh, uh, things in their prime. Yeah. No, I thought that pirates were gone w- was for, forever for a thousand years. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> But the golden age, like you said, is only forty years. So all this, uh, all this fiction and fantasy came out of a, a very small, just less than a lifetime of forty years. I think. I mean, I think this is literal when I say it. I think we've been telling stories about pirates longer than there were actually pirates. <laughs> like, if I mean, like, obviously, piracy existed before. There's a pirate, by the way, is just a bandit on the seas. Like, it's it's somebody. Think of a, a robber on the highway that would come out and steal your stuff out of your car. That on water. And that's always existed since there have basically been boats and like, you know, going back to Vikings and stuff. But when we say pirate in this article, we actually mean like out of work privateer, golden age piracy, what people think of high seas, hooks, buccaneers, you know, tricorn hats, like that era of piracy was so short. Like like we've been for a couple hundred years we've been telling amazing stories about pirates and they only existed for like the the span of two generations okay so the big thing is what is a privateer and a privateer was a just what it sounds like it was a private sailor that was used for many many years joe to protect the british um the, the british ships and the british docks because they didn't have enough warships to be stationed and protect them from all their goods coming in. So a pirateer is like a, I don't know what you, what did you call that? Like, I wouldn't say a merchant marine, but like a hired gun, right? What's your, what's your mindset? 
or what cliche hops in your mind when you think about pirates? You think of them escaping from jail or being thrown off, like being kicked out of the military for being too unruly, right? <laughs> oh, totally. I, I think of them as total bandits, like like wet bandits. But they weren't. They were accomplished sailors in all different skills, and that was what they were doing. They were, you know, they were probably sons of sailors, and they became uh, protectors of the bay for the English. Okay, so this came to a peak in 1585. Um, England had a lot of um, hostilities between Spain. And there was going to be a fight. Um, The crown did not have enough money in its navy to to win. So with this imminent danger coming, um, England had no other alternative, but they had to depend on these privateers to protect their to protect all their people protect all their citizens and protect all their funds okay so for my brain because i in um i translate everything through movies the spanish have so much money and so much gold that they are like the empire in star wars they they have just like all of these fleet ships and then britain's like we've got fishermen and sailors let's just hire them to be our navy basically they're 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 contractors like uber yeah and kind of to be collectors so so you imagine these spanish ships i can see in my mind right now like overflowing with gold coin right they're like big fat turkeys out there (laughs) so they they kind of gave the other way and said hey go ahead and harass um disturb make their spanish shipping stuff make their shipping activity very very uncomfortable so this became, uh, you know, kind of, um, I guess, legal piracy, right? Okay. You have a license to steal, but if you get caught by the Spanners, you know, they could kill you too. But you're doing it legally for your own country. That is so weird. Well, so, so this went on from, you know, let's just say 18, 1585 on to the 1710s, 1715s. Um, and then pirateering was actually just abandoned by the crown, so they were no longer there was no longer that need. So we had a lot of out of work seamen, Joe, um, from fifty thousand out of work seamen, and they got no payoff, like no lump sum for their hard work of service, and there was no pension. And these Holy people shit. saw them, yeah, these people saw themselves as loyal British soldiers. So this was absolutely not fair. Okay. That's that's the thing that shocked me watching this documentary is so many of it, like 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 so many of them and so many of their writings and their personal journals. And by the way, um, if you're like what survived of the pirates' private records, they wouldn't shut up. They all kept journals and they wrote about each other and they bragged about their captains endlessly so like there's a lot of records about what they thought of themselves the loyalty is is what shocks me is like they're they're literally plundering other ships and being bandits and they all consider themselves like british like like loyal you know men of the crown and that's crazy (laughs) yeah justifying your actions right (laughs) right exactly so they're just yeah like like what if you know um what if the police hired you know security guards to do all their work and then suddenly 
fired them all across the nation all at once. And all these guys knew is, is guns or like, you know, how to fight for the crown. Um, I know I keep using metaphors to talk about this, but it's because it's bonkers to me. Like, <laughs> like, like, what do you expect? Like, you, you fire all of an army all at once. And like, what are, you, what are they going to do? That's um, a lot of men at sea, too. 50,000, right? Especially in the good old days. Yeah, and it's not like they put a, a car boot on their ships. Like, they didn't stop them from sailing away and, and tell them. Like, they, they still had all of their means available to them to go be pirates. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just weird to me. Do you think, okay, um, if the king uh, of England had, like, given them a pension, like, had, had compensated them in some way, at least to transition them into new jobs, do you think that would have made a difference? I think about 90% of them it would have. I think there was still those, the captains and the, I'm going to get into a little bit later, some of the government along the ship. I think there's a certain personality type that wasn't looking for to retire <laughs> a pension right. and, and swing in a rocker chair. I think some of them have, but, but, but the vast majority, if they're comfortable, why, why would they go seeking just some way to make a living or some way to feed their family? Right, a lot of them seem to want to go legit, so to speak. Um, okay, so something I've always really wondered, uh, if you want to get into our studies a little bit, um, whenever we hear about like CEOs, you and I have, have covered so many like crooked CEOs and like um, companies that like the the leadership decides to do the absolute most horrible thing. Um, what was that French telecom uh, CEO that we, we talked about? Oh, Didier Lombard. Gosh. <laughs> it's just right. such We've said it so many times. Jeez, I'm sorry. Yeah, like Didier Lombard. Like we, we've talked about so many of them that they, they win and succeed at life over and over again, despite what seems like not having a sense of fairness. And so my, my question is, you know, does not having a sense of fairness make you insane? If you want to talk about uh, uh, not having a sense of fairness in politics, having such an insane division so that, like, um, there's no bipartisanship. Nobody is willing to work with each other at all to to pass a bill like like it. It, it, it doesn't seem like we have a, um, a natural sense of fairness, I guess, is the way I'm trying to put it. I think that's attraction, though, to, to piracy, isn't it? It's all mine. It, it's the greed of. It doesn't have to be that. That's what struck me as so weird is how fair pirates were towards each other when they picked such a <laughs> terrible profession. I think of piracy being right there with what um, narcotic drug lords, <laughs> serial killers, you know. But it's not right. Okay, so that's that's actually kind of the the point I'm trying to get at very badly is. Um, I used to think that pirates were all about selfishness and taking what's yours and that they were being cruel to everybody else in the world, that they were like stealing and, and, you know, taking from, you know, these poor merchants and these poor investors. And really it was the other way around. Britain was being incredibly unfair by keeping, like by not paying them a pension and keeping them contractors and, and, you know, not giving them, a way out of that lifestyle when it was time to leave being a privateer and the pirates were extraordinarily fair toward each other once they set up basically their own companies and and each ship by the way 
was a company like it was an enterprise they 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 set their ship they set their own standards they had like almost like a corporate um methodology their compensation system their wages their fairness everything was split in an extremely exacting way and they voted on everything diplomatically you know even down to like they didn't obey the captain all the time actually hardly ever they they voted on everything there's we're going to get into instances uh, in Todd's history where you know they they were extremely fair whereas the king of Engl- england was like not only did a, was it an unfair turn to send them out and unleash these privateers on the spanish it was i believe equally unfair when he was like okay none of you are getting compensation none of you are getting pensions you are private contractors and i don't have to give you any benefits whatsoever you're all fired and it's you know 40,000 people so there there in my mind it's like we have experienced this throughout history. There cannot be a sense of fairness baked into us. It must be something we teach each other. Like, yeah, when you raise a kid, like, like it, you know, you've you've seen small children. It doesn't seem to me like they are fair. Like, like they, at two, the word mine and no are the first things that they learn. And when you watch <laughs> kids play, they're constantly stealing from each other. Like that's what they do. They they want the best toy, and so. I was wondering, Todd, do you think children have an innate sense of fairness? Do you think it's like part of our DNA to be fair with each other? No, I think we learn it from rejection as we get older. So, no, I don't think it's in us. you going to prove me wrong? Well, okay. I, uh, I'm i going to prove us both right and wrong, I, I think. Um, Kylie Hamlin from Yale kind of uncovered um, the sense of fairness from babies. Like, she was going back to the beginning. I figured theory of mind does not kick in until you're at least two years old or something, or between two and six was my initial guess. Cause that's, that's when you can do tests for like autism to see if a kid can like anticipate what somebody else might know or expect in a situation. So I was like, okay, you know, that's probably around when we, we have this ability to, to get inside each other's heads. Uh, it's, it's way younger. It is, um, she took six months olds, and we're going to link off to the video for this, too. Like, we've got videos for all of these. Uh, she took six months olds and put them into a room, and she would show them a short little play. And the way this would work out is it would be, um, like, imagine a puppet show. Um, it is a cardboard hill that looks green, and it's like, you know, it's, it's got a steep slope, like, like a 45-degree um, a angle. And there's like a red square trying to climb this little hill. And it's it's struggling. It wants up the hill and it slides back down. And it struggles and makes it up halfway. It gets a little bit farther and then slides back down. And then it struggles, goes up the hill, gets almost to the top. And then another shape, like a green triangle, comes up from the top of the hill and knocks it back down. So, like, one shape really wants up the hill. The other shape very obviously stops it in an unfair fashion, knocks it back down. They have a shape that came along afterward. Something that is, you know, obvious in shape and color that's different. And, you know, it, it would it would push it along. It, it would very obviously be like, okay, you need a boost? I'll give you a boost. And the hinderer would knock the shape down that was trying to get up the hill. The helper would come up behind it and push it. And they would show babies these plays. Very, very simple. And the fascinating and kind of shocking thing for me was 
I figured that if you showed babies these shapes afterward, it wouldn't matter what little play you put on. Babies don't have that great a memory. They would just try to chew on them. My 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 <laughs> my stupid adult analysis was: you give the babies these shapes after this little play is put on. They're sticking them in their mouths. They're playing with them. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna put them in their diaper, whatever. Um, Pick their nose, eat that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or they just wouldn't care. Like I expected them to just simply ignore the shapes and like you know uh, want food or whatever. Um, kind of, kind of, you know, babies kind of slump over. <laughs> they kind of tip yeah. over. <laughs> they, they tilt. Yeah, this is this shows you how much I care. I'll, I'll just slump. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, nonviolent protest from these babies is what I expected. Um, but that's not the case. These these babies, almost to a hundred percent degree, would try to grab or pay attention to the helper shape. They they would like if if the green triangle tried to help the other shapes up the hill. The babies wanted it. Like, they, they wanted that shape like it was their new best friend. They're cheering for that thing. That's cool. Rooting for it. They seem to have an attraction to helpful pro-social individuals and also a real aversion to antisocial, unhelpful individuals. Right. So, like, and, okay, that teaches me a couple of things about human interest. Humans from the get-go they want something that is going to be fair. They, they anticipate and want something that is, is going to show fairness and show equality. Um, and they've, they've done the study with other objects. Like, like they, scientists were skeptical. Like, if you're like, this study probably only happened once and it was a small group, not true. Um, they did this with, Stanford did this with giraffe puppets that doled out cookies. They've done this with, like, um, computer models, like where they show them things on a screen, whatever the case is. Babies are hardwired to recognize who is being the most fair in a group, and they're hardwired to want that thing. Like, it, they, they want the giraffe that is fair. They want the shape that is fair. They pay attention to, you know, whoever or whatever around them is fair. And this kind of made sense. Like, at first I was like, no way this translates to real life. You know, Didier Lobart is winning. You know, like, the, the, the politicians who are the most unfair are winning. The King of England won. Um, but then I was thinking about it on like a smaller tribal level, like Todd, if you and I are in like a, you know, ancient man tribe, like we're in the cave where we're cavemen and you come back from a hunt and you always share the meat equally, you know, maybe you take a larger portion for yourself cause you expended more energy, uh, chasing down, you know, mammoth. And then every time I come back from a hunt, maybe I'm better than you. Maybe I'm a, a better hunter. I'm more skilled. I'm a trapper, but I never share as much. Like, I, I come back with twice the haul, but, like, I make them pay for it in seashells or I, I slice it up thinner, whatever. It makes sense that we would be absolutely wired to our core to want the more fair leader to, you know, to, to mm -hmm. get the wealth from the person that's going to benefit us and, and vice versa. Yeah, who spreads the, po the who's going to be more popular is who spreads around, who serves the tribe better and equally. Right, exactly. Um, there is a video I want to I want to watch with you. I mean, like I literally want to click play on this while we're 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 doing this. Um, I'll describe what's happening in the video while you click it, and you you tell me once you've clicked it. So, final experiment that I want to mention to you is our fairness study. And we did that originally with capuchin monkeys, and I'm going to show you the first experiment that we did. It has now been done with dogs, and with birds, and with chimpanzees. 
A capuchin is the monkeys you see in TV when they want like a cute animal. Like the the show Friends, Ross had a monkey and that was a capuchin. But they they make for good um, laboratory animals as well because they they're reactive and expressive and you you can see their facial expressions and things like that. So the scientist, the person who's caring for this monkey who's doing the experiment is giving different fruits to these two monkeys. It's about pay. Uh, what they've done is they have they have taught these monkeys to do a task. Uh, the monkeys have rocks in their cages. And the job they've given them is hand over the rocks. They're perfectly willing to do this 25 times in a row. So cucumber, even though it's really only water in my opinion, but cucumber <laughs> is perfectly fine for them. No, I, I know people like cucumber. I don't. I'm with the monkeys. Cucumber sucks. Um, but they'll eat it. They, they, will, they will pick up a rock and hand it over for a cucumber. It's enough to do the task. One of them gets cucumber, and the other one gets something much better. One of them gets a grape. And they're side by side in these cages. So, like, they can see each other through the glass. Now, if you give the partner grapes, it's a far better food, uh, then you create inequity between them. And the, f- the funny part to me, the, the moment that excites me the most is... The one that gets the unequal pay, the one that gets the cucumber instead of the grape for doing the exact same job, he takes the cucumber and he throws it back at the scientist. They're not being treated. They get pissed off and they start throwing <laughs> the food back at the scientist. Like he, he literally, he'd rather eat nothing and throw away the food just out of spite than to eat the cucumber because uh, he wants a grape. He wants fairness. This is bullshit. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> So they can count and they have a sense of fairness, even though that they're in what I would consider very stressful conditions. We're not just wired for fairness as humans. Mammals are wired for fairness. Kind of seeing these studies and bringing it back to like tribal leaders, that to me makes more sense. Like like a, a starting to understand it from, I hate to say it, from Didier Lobart's perspective or from the perspective of like, um, Mitch McConnell, whose uh, policy in you know in in passing law is to never let the other side pass anything whatsoever. Like literally, his his book is about that. So like you get people who are unfair as their job title. Like like the the King of England, his profession was being professionally unfair for the 1700s. You get these people, and you realize that their sense of fairness isn't about what is fair for everybody, what's fair for the planet. It is what's fair between me and my peers. I'm not gauging my fairness to the common man or or people in the future who might not be able to eat crab. I'm gauging my fairness to everybody else who has a boat in a crab pot. I mean, I hate to bring it back to piracy, but like you can have these pockets of fairness spawn where the law and the government doesn't necessarily agree with it everybody senses that we have it baked into us to be fair so can we actually um okay that's during this documentary that was a huge question of mine is they did not outright say what the pirate code was and like what their sense of fairness brought them to like like if they're going to rebel against england and be like england has unfair rules and unfair pay what's their pay and their rules and their code going to look like so i was you think we should go over that yeah this is extremely interesting to me um, what, what I always believed about pirates, you know, you, you, you read about the, the famous captains and how they, how brave they are, brazen they are. So I just assumed that the captain gets everything and all these other people, his minions, work for him 
to make him rich. And if you don't obey, you get what, Joe? You get, you walk the plank or you get your hand cut off, right? Right. I figured it worked like a call center. The boss gets everything and everybody else just works for a pittance or leaves. I, I want to start with just some kind of, you know, I, I, myths, I guess, about pirates. You know, you know how they talked about the, the skull and crossbones of the flags? Yeah. Well, the Jolly Rogers. The Jolly Rogers. But each one had their absolute individual one it wasn't just that cookie cutter one so as far as piracy what your flag was the scarier and bloodier it looked but they didn't pull out the their bad guy flag right away they always had a friendly flag until they got right before they were going to attack and on the flip side the merchant ships had carpenters that would construct fake looking cannons to try to deter people <laughs> from attacking. Kind of like you'd have a security system sign in your yard, even though you don't have a security system. <laughs> or you say, that's this, this, funny. We have a, we have, beware of dog, but there's no dog. So that's both sides are kind of trying to trick each other. <laughs> but on the, the ship. The pirates are like, you can trust us. And the ships are like, nobody mess with us. And both, they're both completely full of it. And just when you get right to, right to say, you know, you're waving, hey, guys, what's going on? You having a nice time sailing? <laughs> then you flip the switch and put your pirate <laughs> thing up, <laughs> which doesn't seem very fair. But what was interesting to me was that there's two people who are in charge on a, on a ship. It's called the captain's court. So there's, of course, the captain who makes the decision, who's the CEO, the leader. And then you have a quartermaster who manage the team almost like a general manager and the business part of piracy joe is you get a, a leader you get a crew you get a ship and you go out and try to get as much as you can to pay all your people and then to upgrade your equipment to get better cannons to get a better ship and then to recruit even more so it's important to have a charismatic leader because everyone on the ship no matter how old you are or what race you are, you have an equal say on every decision that's made. Can you believe that, Joe? That's crazy to me. Like, watching this documentary, okay, movies have taught me the opposite. Like, like if you watch any movie with pirates and the captain always has the final say, they even pull that. Like, like in, in movies about pirates, like, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, it's a mutiny if the captain does anything like if if people don't want to go with the captain they mutiny it's violent it's bloody and it's always this big threat they've outvoted the captain in this documentary several times like they talked about how it, it they didn't have to kill the captain they didn't necessarily have to do anything horrific just sometimes he would just be outvoted and they they do something else but that his vote so this this captain who's been on the seas let's just say an older captain who's 20 years on seas let's say he's in his late 30s a 15-year-old deckhand has the same vote as he does. And they also share all of the treasure, all the loot, evenly. And that surprised me, too. <laughs> so when they're recruiting people, Joe, what they say is the, pay, the, the living conditions on these ships is horrible. But they knew to treat the people, their crew, fairer than other crews. They actually... It wasn't uncommon for these pirate ships to have bands that came and traveled with them, and theater actors would come and put shows on for the men. 
So not only did you, <laughs> as a captain and as a quartermaster, want to recruit the best people, you had to have the best entertainment on your ship to maintain good employees. Isn't that crazy? That is so funny. Like, that is, yeah. First off, can you imagine going to any company and just being like, I know I'm new here. I know I just scrubbed the floors, but I want my vote to count as much as the CEO. And also, where's the theater? I need entertainment when I eat. <laughs> well, this is how fair fair pirates were. Um, let's take Blackbeard. Everyone knows the famous Blackbeard. Well, he met a good run of robbing very uh, lightly guarded slave ships. And this is how fair he was. In a, in a very racist time, he would give the when they capture a slave ship coming over from Africa, headed towards the, the U.S., the United States, he would ask the, the slaves if they want to continue to be slaves or they can be free men and become pirates with him. But right. I, I have to put a caveat on that. He also said, the life's not a lot better than being a slave, but at least you're free and at least you have a chance to fight. I can't think of anything more more fair than that, right? Right. There were several pirates that, that that was their policy, is they would free slaves when they got on the ship. Blackbeard would do it, but he was also, like, fickle about it. I, I remember one of the parts of the documentary even talks about this, where he would free slaves one day, and then, like, the next week he'd sell them to the Carolinas. Like, yeah. like it, it was really just dependent on his mood and, like, how much money it would make. But the big thing was, when they were recruiting people, their their base pay was way less than minimum wage, right? But all the captains knew that your pay, this is, this is, you've been making minimum wage now, but when we hit a big one, we hit the lottery, <laughs> all the commission you're going to make on that is going to be worth it because you're going to make just as much as the captain and the quartermaster. I looked up some videos by CGP Gray, who has a couple of really good videos on piracy, just generally. He's a very smart dude who makes amazing YouTube videos, and he's extremely well-researched. And one of the things he talks about is the shares in pay are almost always very equitable. They tell you up front, you know, the, the captain gets, like, what is it, two, two and a half shares to every man share. The, the um, you know, his, his right-hand man makes two shares, so does the surgeon. But, like, it's all up front. It's all transparent. And yeah, everybody will be in on the shares once they make a haul. No company I've ever worked for is that transparent. I mean, like literally. Roy, surprised what our boss makes, L low or high, or we we never know, right? We never know what everybody makes. Right. The insane unfairness of business now is you go to a company, you get hired, and they will ask you what you know. What do you think you're worth? Like they'll make you make the opening bid so they don't have to tell you what other people make. And you compare that to piracy where they're just like, yep, you get one share. I get two and a half because I'm the captain. Like, it's 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 well, crazy that pirates are more fair. Yeah. yeah. And they swear they swear you to secrecy about what you make. Say, hey, don't because they because you're always coming in at a higher rate because you're coming from another company. So they say, hey, you can't tell people what you make. So they're going to want raises. <laughs> it's not just that. Right. It's socially unacceptable to talk about your pay in our in our society. You're not supposed to be able to ask somebody that. It's, it's thought of as rude, as bad manners. Well, who does that benefit if we don't all know? The hiring, the, <laughs> the bosses. Right. Uh, Semi-related, um, there was a, a, a episode about Freakonomics that just came out that I thought was amazing. 
and it was about um, Darren Asamogel's paper on um, business managers, MBAs. And just related to fairness, they talked about how um, so many companies are now run or managed by MBAs, and they all come from schools that basically teach to do this kind of stuff, to, to keep pay transparency, to keep pay untransparent, and to um, you know streamline and slim and, and make cost-cutting hit their uh, workforce first. And basically do what the king did to the privateers, which is if you don't need them, you cut them and you give them as little as possible on their way out the door. And they were looking at this paper, which talks about how, you know, we're run by MBAs in this country. There are so many that are currently running businesses that that actually might be the reason why um, wage stagnation has happened. Like, like so many people are using that sort of bottom line unfairness to the employer or the employee that it is shaping the country. <laughs> and they they spent an hour arguing for and against this paper, and basically, you know, um, not all MBA programs teach the same thing. We are not all being, you know, like, not everybody running a company is that much of a... I was going to say pirate, but pirates are more fair. Not everybody in the MBA programs are that uh, royal. <laughs> um I don't know what the opposite of piracy is. Like that's this is the problem with this documentary, Todd. You've ruined me because I used to say pirate when I would compare people to a negative or an unfair system or somebody that was like trying to take as much as they could. Now I can't. Now I have well, to use the King of England, which is crazy. Everybody can say, oh, most pro or or not all programs, but how many? What's the percentage? I think it's probably still a high percentage because people love their middle managers to what cut expenses faster, cheaper, right? right? <laughs> Right. And now these pirates are like, yeah, everybody gets a share or fair share. And you get it now. It's not later. Okay, so that's that's a good point is when are you fair? If you're on the receiving end of a bad decision, does it make you want to reciprocate? Or if somebody else is nice or pleasant, does it make you reciprocate? If somebody is sad, does it make you want to treat them more fairly? Like, like how much does emotion play into this? If we are hardwired for fairness from babies, like babies see the shapes on a hill, if the triangle that, like, was a bastard, if the triangle who had been, like, pushing the other shapes down came up to the baby later and was like, I know I was a jerk, but I am so sorry. I have had a horrible week. Uh, It's unfair. That triangle would have taken up our resources. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't survive as an organization if that triangle had made it up the hill. I, I... have you ever been fired from a job and somebody like calmly took you aside and explained why you got laid off? Oh yeah. Yeah. If they explain the real, the dollars and cents of it. And I've, I've been part of, I was in 2008, I was part of a huge major bank layoff, huge that jobs didn't come back of really good jobs for people who were vested and been there for years. So they had specialists come in just for that, for, uh, Oh wow. Quality control people, professional firers. <laughs> But like you said, they that's they did a good thing of kind of painting the picture and delivering it in digest, digestible chunks so you wouldn't feel like you were being treated unfairly. That's that's perfect. I mean like like as an example, that's perfect. I had the opposite. I got laid off and they thought that it was best to quietly let us go and to not explain too much. They didn't they didn't want to have a whole lot of contact. And we all held it against them. I mean, literally, like, some of my coworkers started lawsuits against the company 
uh, because they 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 didn't explain anything. They just, just said yeah. our company can't support this. We need to let you go. They just want to know why. Like, we just want to know why. Yeah, and that's exactly. And that's if you go through a breakup or or you do get lost. You know, when you get fired from a job that you're doing well and you're performing, why? How how could they do this to me right now? Then that's what it's like. And same thing with a a relationship. It's like. How can you not love me anymore, right? How is that possible? <laughs> we want answers, right? So we can move right. on. Right, and if somebody which... just, yeah, if somebody quietly dumps you, it's way more painful than if they actually explain, I'm going to therapy now, I've got something wrong with me, I, I need to work on something. Like, it. it's, yeah, it hurts either way, but knowing makes a world of difference. So, uh, Harvard Business Review did a comparison model. Like, they, they compared companies they wanted to know if it is, um, they call it process fairness. We're going to link off to this article. It's fantastic. It's, it's called Why It's So Hard to Be Fair. And it's basically about being fair on a huge corporate level. Um, so with this comparison study they did, they looked at companies where the senior managers never explained why layoffs were happening. They just sort of quietly did it. And they compared companies where, um, you know, they, they hired people like, like Todd's company, like Todd's bank did, where they, they got people to come in and they, they explained everything and they told them, you know, here's, here's why it's happening. You know, it's not about you. Or, or even if it is, if, if we need somebody with different skills, like the, if they were expressive and they talked about it and they explained the fairness of it, um, the amount of people that went back and tried to sue X companies or at least those that held grudges against their companies when they were let go without an explanation was shockingly high. Um, like it, it was, I, th I think it was like only 1% of ex employees who felt they were treated with a high degree of process fairness filed wrongful termination. And it was like 17 times that, that like if, if you didn't say anything, you just quietly fired them. That is like like that is so many factors of of that's a huge you know importance swing. like that, that's a huge yeah exactly swing. didn't you have a problem um, didn't you have something that happened with your company and you were pissed you were you were getting legal oh. action being treated unfairly oh absolutely it uh, that one came down to um, they were not paying out benefits and they didn't explain anything and when people tried to call on their benefits uh, uh, I was one of them when we tried to collect vacation time or or um they cut a couple people's medical insurance or changed it without saying anything that was the key part is they stonewalled us they they wouldn't answer the phones they didn't want to explain what was happening um they didn't tell us wait a while or you know you have to take that next year like they no explanation i think that's what ended up leading to more lawsuits is is several of us got into collective lawsuits and contacted our unions because they said nothing and i, I think that is a huge part of it is fairness is transparent and fairness speaks. Being fair means explaining yourself once in a while. And that, to me, that is going to be the biggest takeaway. That was in um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. He talked about process fairness in, you know, uh, suits against doctors. That if a doctor, you know, they watch videos in silence, they turned the mute button on and they would watch videos of doctors explaining things to their patients and the doctors who made a lot of eye contact and explained things in a fair-sounding way or, or looked like they were being expressive, they were 
sued for wrongful practice way, way less than doctors who didn't seem to be paying attention. So so much fairness seems to just come from, it's not just about getting your slice of the pie. It's letting someone know that they're being heard and that you have empathy and that they're part of the decision making. That's very interesting. That's a great point. That's that extreme. I have the ultimate one for pirates. Now, when they okay. go, when they go and they go and vo- for for just being fairness with the enemy, with the captured, who I always thought they were cruel to. Didn't you think that they just go in there, and start cutting I, limbs off and throwing them overseas and rape and pillage and everything? The the term rape and pillage is exactly what comes to mind. I figured that whenever they captured. Uh, especially an enemy captain. Like in movies, they always torture them, uh, almost without exception. Well, that's a good point, because this is what they would do. Once they had the boat surrounded or in a vulnerable state, they would ask the captain what he wants to do. He has two options. He can fight, have his have his men fight and protect his um, all his cargo, or he can just hand it over. And when you hand it over, it's just a business decision. Not a single person gets hurt. But what the pirates found was the cruel captains would always be greedy and they'd want their men to fight and protect his wealth. So this is how fair the pirates were. They would turn to the men who were under the, let's say, a legitimate captain's control and they'd say, is this guy a jerk or not? (laughs) And (laughs) And if he was a jerk, they would kill the captain. And free all the men. So they gave. So that's when your life is actually in the hands of your employees. <laughs> Isn't that scary? That is wild. Okay. Something that I mean, like this is an important part to that. A lot of times that stuff was insured. Like a lot of times their cargo wasn't like if we go home empty handed, none of us get paid. That kind of might have been true for some of them. But like. A lot of these ships were sailing, like these merchant ships, and they were insured for losses, like if, if piracy or storms yeah. happened. So, you so ha- the captain was just an asshole middle manager that was like, no, we're keeping the yeah. cargo because I have a, you know, I get a higher bonus when we get home. Yeah, pride or ego, but then, can you believe they had insurance way back then? You have to fill out some forms with like an inkwell, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard to imagine. Things have not changed that much. They may not have had an app on their phone, but they still had insurance. <laughs> Imagine filling out the boxes on an insurance claim with with a quill. That would be. <laughs> but, but you think about this: if you're a pirate and you go to three, you know, you go to three raids in a row and nobody dies, what's the harm? Right. You you start to feel untouchable. You're on a good run. You know, I, I guess that's not as exciting as the movies either. That, they, that you just go up there and say, "Hey, give me your stuff," and they hand it over. <laughs> I worked at a FedEx warehouse uh, loading boxes when I was very young. I, If somebody showed up and held a gun to me and was like, give me all of the boxes in the back of that truck, and then my boss was like, no, you fight him. Like, like you know, you know you go to the mat. <laughs> that's, that's basically what this is. Like, it's, it's no, it's just cargo. The golden age of piracy didn't begin abruptly when someone waved a magic wand and a legion of sailors became extra greedy. It started because thousands of men had been trained and employed to do a job. And when the empire signed their checks, took away their right to work without giving them an alternative, 
they put their skills to a new purpose. From wages to plunder, from risking death by Spanish gun to risking death by British gallows. Legit or illegal, it was all the same. Except as a free pirate enterprise, the money in healthcare was better than what society offered. Nothing's changed in our sense of fairness since the pirate era. In fact, our human sense of fairness has been hardwired into us for centuries. Going back to early man, we've always known you can't trust a tribal leader who doesn't share the meat. The same can be said for businesses, bosses, even spouses. If someone doesn't have a sense of fairness, we can't trust them at the most primitive level. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything.